0: Morning, church. You guys sounded absolutely beautiful this morning. Uh, we are reading from Second Peter, chapter one. If you don't have a Bible, we have community Bibles for anybody that wants to use or keep them. Um, raise your hand, and we'll get you one. All right. Second Peter, chapter one. We'll read through verse eleven. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, I want to begin our time uh, this morning with a question. A question I think that we all have a pretty quick um, answer to. Uh, The question is, if you could change anything in your life, anything at all, what would it be? If you could change anything in your life, what would it be? Do you have it? Good. Because the point of asking that question isn't really what the answer is. The point of asking that question is actually that each and every one of us has an answer. And we can come up with one almost instantly, right? Every single one of us has something in our life that we wish we could change. Something that we could change. And if you don't, that will change. <laughs> Whether it be an attitude, a habit, a, a vice, a, um, a perspective, whatever. We all have something we want to change. Even if it is at the very base the desire to have something to change. But what's no- what normally happens is that we try to change, we fail, we feel guilty, um, and then we get frustrated. Or at best, we change for a little while, and then we finally, over time, revert back to the old ways of doing things. Um, you know, some of us have probably co-opted good old Popeye statement. Um, you remember Popeye? I, mean, you know, he, um, I keep wanting to say Pot-Pie every time I say his name, which is something I never thought I would have to wrestle through as an adult. Um, but, but Popeye, he has this statement of despair. Whenever he's frustrated, whenever he doesn't know what to do next, you know, he says, I am what I am. You know, It's this despairing resolve that no matter what happens in my life, I'm always going to be the same person. I'm always going to be stuck in the same situation. Nothing's going to be able to change me. And regardless of where you are in your faith journey this morning, we've all been there. We've all felt that at some point. Sometimes it's revealed in a crisis that happens in our lives. Other times it's just the percolating self-discontentment. And if you consider yourself a Christian this morning, there's a pretty good chance that at some point in your Christian journey, you felt cheated. Let me explain. (laughs) You're like, wait a second. Well, of all people, Christians, we're called to change, right? And yet, we may feel the same, like we're wrestling through the same problem, the same illness, the same struggle. For some of us, this, this moment, it comes shortly after we enter the Christian faith. Oh, right up there. Just a little bit. Are we good? I know you guys are, you guys are, can I give, give a round of applause for our sound? You know? They work so hard, and I make things terribly ornery by how much I move and how loud I talk. Um, And every now and then, these speakers, they just don't want to cooperate. You know, they were great with sound check, and then all of a sudden, they changed. (laughs) Key key component. It wasn't wasn't planned. Sometimes change happens, and we don't plan it. Um, But for some of you, you know, your Christian journey, it started off with this great high, and then over time, it stagnated, and then it gets lower and lower. Whereas for some of you... This, this, this sort of highs and lows repeat over and over in your Christian journey. And then still for some of you this morning, you're not ready to yet call yourself a Christian. And actually, because you see so many Christians who are wrestling, you see this as evidence that God isn't real. Or quite frankly, he just doesn't care. Oh, why aren't you changing things? And this becomes a confirmation in your mind that Christian... The Christian faith just isn't worth worth your time because so many other Christians look exactly like you do. Is change possible? Why why is change so hard? Why is this so difficult? What are we missing? And the truth is, even for very many Christians, the way we try to change needs to change. The way we try to change needs to change. This summer, we've been walking through a series, um, as we've been looking at some of the core beliefs of the Christian faith. And we're asking this critical question that each one of us want to know, does it really matter? Does it really matter what I believe about God and the Bible and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and on and on? Do these things really impact daily life in a practical avenue? And this morning, we're asking the question, does it really matter how we live? Or in other words, we're, we're looking at something that's pretty controversial in our culture, how the gospel makes it possible for people to change, how the gospel makes it possible for people to change. And when we come to our passage this morning, we step into a letter written by the apostle Peter to an early church, a man who had experienced change in his own life. He knew Jesus. He followed him. He watched him teach the masses. He watched him heal a blind man before him, bring wholeness to a leper cast out demons, which for us in modern culture seems strange. He stood in awe, and yet, when the time came, when Jesus was arrested, Peter ran. When Jesus is crucified, Peter hid. When Jesus rose again from the dead three days later, Peter is just as awestruck and surprised as everyone else. I mean, Jesus had given Peter the nickname Rock, and yet he only seems to know how to be a chicken, you know? (laughs) But when we look at Peter, something changes in him. Something changes that brought about a courage and a clarity that he almost didn't have before. Something that made him willing to risk it all for Jesus. And it's here that Peter tells us, the way we try to change needs to change. The way we often try to change needs to change. And the Christian faith provides a remarkable, think workable framework for change. And that it removes three primary barriers standing in the way for Christian growth or character change. The three barriers consist of a motivation problem, a strategy problem, and a goal problem. A a motivation problem, a strategy problem, and a goal problem. If you you haven't already, would you please turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. Yeah. And if you are using one of the community Bibles, you can find this passage on page number 658 Just as there is plenty of folks today, there were plenty of people in the first century who had given up on life change, had given up hope. But Peter wants us to know that this doubt, this hopelessness, is actually rooted in the deepest of our motivations. In other words, we have a motivation problem. Uh, Frank LeBas, he was a, a vibrant pastor of the 20th century, he once said, if you are weary of some sleepy form of devotion, probably God is as weary of it as you are. Um, (laughs) So that's not an excuse. It's not portraying who God is. It's actually something we're messing up here. So you see Christianity. There's something very unique about Christianity. It isn't actually the aim of transformation. There are many religious and non-religious institutions that have an aim for transformation. But what's unique, unlike anything else in the rest of the world, is our motivation. Our motivation. If you look at uh, any other religious and non-religious framework, When you get down to the base of the motivation, you'll find that it has two key sources, either fear or pride, fear or pride. And recently, a few have noticed how the early philosopher and preacher of of, of America here, Jonathan Edwards, actually had noticed this back in the 18th century, and we're catching up with him, um, interestingly. So, So as he writes, he highlights the attribute of honesty for an example. So here's some of his reasoning. Why do you think you should refrain from lying? Remember, our natural response as human beings is probably pride or fear. So what do we normally think? We normally say we shouldn't tell lies because you might get caught, right? Don't tell lies because you might get caught. So the fear of getting caught keeps us honest. Or we tell each other that we shouldn't tell lies because you're not that kind of person. Gabe, you're better than that. You're a good person, aren't you? And so our pride keeps us from telling lies. But here's a, there's a huge problem here. Think about it, why, why, do actually, why do we actually tell lies? Drum roll, <laughs> fear and pride, right? The same reason, why, why, did you lie to get, why did you lie on that job application? Because you were afraid you wouldn't get hired otherwise. And why we have these inflated egos so that we lie about our salary at our previous job in order to get a higher salary at our new job that of course more accurately represents what we deserve with our characteristics. Here's the difficulty. Pride and fear can be very convincing, and that they can motivate behavior change for a while until they motivate behavior change in the wrong direction, until the fear of not getting the job outranks the fear of getting caught, until the pride that we have won't let honesty ruin our chances of getting what we think we deserve. The other rub is just because you're doing the right action, it doesn't mean you're a changed person. Just because you're doing the right action actually doesn't mean that you're a changed person. Deep down, sin, brokenness may still rule your decisions because your morality is self-focused on pride and fear. So in other words, you're immorally moral. <laughs> there you go. There's a new, new phrase. Immorally moral. But, but what God has actually exclusively granted his people in the precious and very great promises that Peter highlights here of the gospel, what is it? The promise of the gospel invades our sin-sick hearts and makes it beat to a different drum. Because the gospel says we are more broken and sinful than we could have ever imagined, obliterating pride. And then simultaneously, for those by grace, through faith in Jesus, embrace the forgiveness that we never thought imaginable, we see that fear becomes obliterated. Fear and pride destroyed in the gospel. Such that God's salvation through Jesus for those who believe actually empowers our faith down to its deepest depths of motivations. You know, it's a, in a similar way, it's that, for that couple who just got engaged, right? And now they're planning the wedding day. I mean, why on earth do we go through so much intensity planning for this wedding day? Is it because either of the two potential spouses are thinking to themselves, you know what, if I don't plan this wedding day well enough, then they're going to think I'm not worthy to be married. Or is it driven out of fear that if I don't work hard enough in planning this wedding day, they're going to leave? No. The reason that there's so much work working towards the great wedding day, it's because it's all based on the promise of a yes already. Will you marry me? Yes, let's plan it. And look forward to the culmination of that yes on the wedding day. It's not out of fear or pride, but based on the promise of yes leading to its conclusion and fulfillment. And it's in these promises of the gospel that God's great yes to us in the person of Jesus and only in Jesus are so big that they don't leave room for anything else in the recesses of our hearts. Fear and pride are pushed out. Actually, how Peter says it is that we have escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire, a.k.a. fear and pride. So if we get this wrong, talking about change, not only will you never experience authentic change, you're never even going to want to because you're just replacing one kind of life with another kind of life with not, without doing any work under the surface. I can feel daunting. That's not exciting. It doesn't even seem realistic. But Peter makes it clear in our passage that everyone who's a follower of Jesus has already been given everything needed for life change. Everything. Everything. It's interesting that in the original language, when you look in verse three, the phrase all things, when you get down to its meaning, literally means, you ready? All things, you know, there's nothing, (laughs) there's nothing hidden under there. It's pretty clear. It's pretty straightforward. We can trust and rely on our English translation. And one area we forget to look, though, is what is sometimes called the work under the work, right? The work under the work, our motivations. So is this you? Do you have a motivation problem? And since it's many times hidden from our sight, it many times can't be seen by us until we see some signposts, these warning signs in our life in other areas. So here's a couple, just to give us an example. If your motivation is pride, you'll find yourself getting angry when God doesn't answer your prayers the way you want him to. Why? Because prayer is... For you, in your mind, is an opportunity to dictate to God rather than depend upon him. Such that if he doesn't bring that right opportunity, that right person, that right place in exactly the right time that you had planned, you start thinking, God, do you care? Do you notice? Do you see? Don't you realize what I'm trying to do here? Are you getting with the picture? You know? Prayer is not motivated by the promise of the gospel. But pride is once again been an avenue to try to manipulate God, to manipulate him to come along your plan rather than depending upon his purposes and his plan in your life. That's pride. If your motivation is fear, on the other hand, you'll find yourself working too many hours at your job, trying and fighting for the credit and the approval of others. If you don't get it at home, you fight even more zealous at work. If you don't get it at work, you're in many... Arguments with your spouses or your roommates. Trying to get that affirmation. You're afraid of being ordinary, redundant, unaccomplished. And when you don't get that needed affirmation, you're crushed. Or you're afraid that if you don't get that affirmation, your life will be ruined. Fear. That's not a life motivated by the power of the gospel where God has already said yes to you. But it's a life motivated by fear that suffocates any hope of joy, any hope for change, and destroys the greatest of mothers, the greatest of fathers, the greatest of employees and employers. Do You have a motivation problem. If that's true, you'll manage for a little while. We can manage, but you won't change. And that's a key distinction there. Not until you embrace the promises of the gospel in Jesus as God's promise to you. But if that's true, you know, if Peter's right and we even understand our motivation, it's an honest question to still ask, you know, why does it still seem like we aren't changing? Why am I still wrestling through the same battles, losing the same fights, avoiding the same sort of conflict? That's a really good question. Maybe you don't struggle to have the right motivation, but you struggle to have the right strategy. Your biggest problem is a strategy problem. Look, in one sense, you know, I feel like the, the kid with floaties who's trying to teach you how to swim. Um, I've got a lot to learn here uh, in this area. And so let's look together at, at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, where Peter says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. And the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Look at this. For this very reason, because I've said this about the motivation, make every effort to supplement your faith. Let me just reiterate this. It's only once we get our motivation right once we place our faith in Jesus alone and all that God has given us in Jesus, that we can experience a change in character. But then Peter says we're actually to supplement our faith, add to it, round it out. This is what God's word is highlighting. Faith isn't a one-time decision that never changes us. It's a daily decision that moves us, that grows us, that transforms us. And and like the other New Testament writers, it's not uncommon across the pages of the New Testament. Peter gives us a list on how this kind of pans out, okay? First, we're to supplement faith with virtue or moral excellence, which is a simple statement to realize that true faith always leads to life change. It impacts your morals as a person, your interactions with others, your interactions in society, at your workplace. Next, we're to add knowledge, which is knowing Jesus such that he's the one who informs what this virtue looks like in our day-to-day. Then self-control over against reckless passion. Steadfastness, which is a mature understanding that it's not just a one-and-done battle, but it's a daily battle over a whole life long. And the endurance by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to actually fight that battle. Godliness, which is respect for God and others who bear the image of God. And lastly, brotherly and sisterly affection with love. Now, that's all well and good, and I think most of us, regardless of where you're at in your faith journey, would give that two thumbs up, right? You're not going to be like, oh, love, oh, there's no way, that's not, that's not acceptable to me. I think most of these, we can put our thumbs up, and no matter where you're at, and say these are good things. But what moves our faith to Virtue. What moves our faith to to add then knowledge and self-control, perseverance, godliness, family, affection, and love? What's the strategy? And for some of us, we need to do some pre-work here, because when we read Peter, we can fall into one of three errors. First, for some of us, we can think change is optional in the Christian life. God just wants me to ask Jesus into my heart, and if I can change a little bit, that's even better. But just so we clear, I want you to know I think that it's optional. It's not critical. Okay? That's one viewpoint. Secondly, for some of us, we think change is magical. God changes me. I don't do anything. So if I'm not growing, it's God's fault. Thirdly, and lastly, for some of us, we think change is impossible. Impossible. I mean, the primary message of our culture is that people can't change. I mean, even Disney's Frozen. <laughs> Maybe you've heard too much about this movie. Uh, the Little Stones trolls <laughs> in their song, you know, fixer-upper. They sing, we're not saying you can change him because people don't really change. And I'm like, whoa, that's a pretty intense statement for a (laughs) seven-year-old. And then my wife's like, I know, you act like you're seven. And and many of us, many of us, regardless of what we may say, we many times function as though this is the reality. Change is impossible, or so we think. Well, these are huge issues, and they just don't line up with the Christian faith as we see across the pages of Scripture. So what does? The way we try to change needs to change. The way we try to change needs to change. And now we're all waiting for that magic bullet. I've maybe got some of you on the edge of your seat. You're waiting for that next answer, and I I want you to be ready because I'm going to disappoint you. Um, The strategy can be summed up uh, by Allen Iverson. Let's watch.
0: Easy to sum it up. When you just talk about practice, we sitting here, I supposed to be the franchise player and we in here talking about practice. I mean, listen, we talking about practice, not a game, not a game, not a game. We talking about practice, not a game, not, not, not the game that I go out there and, and die for and play every game like it's my last, not the game. We talking about practice, man. I mean, how silly is that, man? We're talking about practice. I know I'm supposed to be there. I know I'm supposed to lead by example. I know that. And I'm not not shoving it aside, you know, like it don't mean anything. I know it's important. I do, I honestly do. But we are talking about practice, man. What are we talking about?
1: We're talking about practice, right? I mean, we're not talking about the game. We're talking about practice. And a key component to the Christian life and our strategy is practice. You know, it takes practice to round out your faith. And I know everyone hates practice. Alan Iverson hates practice. (laughs) You know, I know it's important, but, you know, we're talking about practice. We're Americans, right? Give me a pill, you know, do some surgery. I don't want practice, Well, I'm sorry. Anything else just isn't biblical faith as we look across the pages of Scripture. And the spiritual practices that actually pop up over and over and over again in Scripture are the ordinary daily ones. You know, it's not something, you know, I'm going to reveal to you a whole new plan here. It's prayer, asking for God's help to live this out, live out your faith. It's being engaged in God's word on a daily basis, remembering those great and very precious promises of his help for you and how he's helped others in the past to live out their faith in him and lastly community where we call one another to live out this faith this virtue and then invite accountability you see the gospel is opposed to earning it's opposed to earning we cannot earn god's love but it is not opposed to effort if we think it you know if we think it's a, it's about earning god's grace then we have to revisit this motivation problem we mentioned at the very beginning but it isn't opposed to effort. Nobody is changed by accident. And that's why this practice, it needs the right perspective. So here are three things to keep in mind as we enter daily practice. First, there must be given, these must be given priority, not margin in your life. Priority, not margin. Peter says to make every effort. Make every effort. He's saying it right there. Financial effort physical effort, mental effort, emotional effort, relational effort, everything you have, put it for this, life change. The key to strategy is always prioritization and order. You can't just make margin for life change. Make margin for everything else in your life. Make every effort for this. Secondly, look for progress, not perfection. You know, Peter tells us, That if these are yours and increasing, if these are yours and they're increasing, we should find comfort. We aren't perfect. And some of us, quite frankly, started further back in the race than others. Um, You had a really rough childhood. When you came to Christ, you already felt the hooks of addiction deep within your soul. I understand Life change will look different for different people in different stages of their journey with Christ. But are you experiencing life change? Are you experiencing life change? It's about progress, not perfection. Lastly, expect a process, not a rival. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, um, this should help explain some of the issues you probably have with Christianity. If you've ever made the claim, the church is full of a bunch of hypocrites, well, you're right. Now but not always. Not always. Because no one here has arrived until Christ arrives again. We're all in process, growing into Christ-likeness, being changed. And if you're a Christian, no matter where you find yourself in the Christian journey, this is a list you can grow in. Um, We're always growing and changing, and the more you grow, the more you realize you need to grow. That's kind of how the holy thing works, holiness. The deeper in you go, the more you realize how broken you are and how greater you need to rest on the grace of God. And some of you this morning, you hear this message and it feels like a rock that is on your back. You've gotta get the motivation piece right. Otherwise, you're gonna hear the strategy piece only through a lens of legalism that weighs you down. It's first through the yes that God has promised through Christ that we enter into this practice. And that we have looking forward to the day that he will bring all of his promises to culmination when he returns. This holiness thing is kind of like a video game. Uh, I used to play a ton in high school, but then I'm very addicted to video games, so I can't play them, except for soccer, because then you have like an ending point. Oh, 90 minutes. great. Um, But if you play like these uh, RPGs, role-playing games, I'm in, I'm hip. Um, These RPGs, you know, you, you can never just play the last level as soon as you get it. If it's a good game, right? Otherwise, you're gonna be totally annihilated. You have to start with the first level. You gotta learn what the buttons do. You, you have to kind of almost build the character of your character as you go through the different levels. And then finally, you have the skill set if you've made it that far to the last level to continue on and to beat the greatest foe, the biggest boss, right? We have to ex- expect a process, not a rival. You see, the way we try to change, it needs to change. Otherwise, we'll revert to our default mode as human beings, which Peter highlights as having three things, being ineffective, unfruitful, and short-sighted here in our passage. Now, you may push back and say, look, Gabe, okay, everything. look at everything I've been able to accomplish without Christ. You can't say, I've been ineffective. And what Peter would have us pause and realize is know the the world of difference between being productive and being effective in the right things. Being productive and being effective in getting the right things done. You know, someone once said, our greatest fear as individuals and as a church should not be a failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. That don't really matter. You may do a lot in life and get a lot done, but for what? For who? For how long? Which is why Peter says that when we don't practice with perspective, we're short-sighted people. We can't see past our present appetites. We We can't look back at our lives before Christ and realize how broken they were, how empty they were before Christ came back into our life. We can't look forward at the future honor and glory we'll have with Christ when he returns. The only thing we can see... As to the tip of our noses, because we're blinded by our own present appetites, such that we stumble and fall over our pride and our fear. As a pastor, I've heard time and time again of people who feel distant from God, they feel shaky in their faith. And about 98% of the time, when I pry in with a few more questions, a good reason for that is they stopped practicing. Their perspective got skewed. Prayer isn't existent. They're no longer putting their noses in the book. They're not engaged in community, and they want to know, where is God? He's in the same place he's always been. Will you practice? Will you come with the appropriate perspective? Are you growing in Christ? I mean, if not, it might be a strategy problem. But even still, we might actually have the right motivation in place, and the right strategy in place. And there may be some of us in here who've got those both in place, but we're miserable people. The more we talk, all you do is complain. You're just so broken and so angry. What's going on? Why is this happening? It might be because you have a goal problem. A goal problem. If we, if we miss God's goal in transforming us, our holiness will revert to a sort of holiness that sets us apart for all the wrong reasons. Or we'll become fearful in the face of trial and hardships, and we'll miss out on the gift of joy and life. But if we do understand God's goal and transformation, then we can authentically look forward to practice. We'll be excited to make every effort. Now, many of you are skeptical at this point, and, you know, rightfully so. But here, here this is the base issue. Ultimately, it comes down to what God is really like. Ultimately, it comes down to what God is really like. Too many times we think God is like Willy Wonka (laughs) in Charlie the Chocolate Factory. I mean, do you remember that movie? Some of you freaked out by that movie. I loved it. Who's ever heard of a schnozberry, right? (laughs) Good old Willy, you know, he throws these obstacles at Charlie. Why? Just to test his commitment. That's it. There's no purpose beyond that but that's not what God is like. That's not how he works in the world. He calls his people to be holy, to round out our faith. He isn't just testing us and then tallying our scores. That's that's legalism, once again, creeping back in through a different name. Rather, like a loving father, he's preparing us. He's preparing us for something more grand, quite frankly, than our hearts can presently embrace. He's preparing us for something more complex and beautiful and brilliant than our minds can presently grasp. Look with me at how Peter lays out the goal in 2 Peter 3, verses 10 and 11. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these qualities, if you do, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, because of all of this that I've just said, be all the more diligent. Why? Because God's goal is to make us into the kind of person who wants his kingdom, who wants his kind of reign, who ultimately wants him. If you are to look back through our earlier list that Peter gives of virtue, of knowledge, and so on, I mean, you have to wonder where is he getting this list from? Is this from a series in the Greco Roman, you know, morality code? Is this from his Jewish roots? Well, what we find is he's not really describing an abstract ideal, but the ideal person. The ideal person, a person he knows well, who in later in verse 16, Peter says he himself saw in all his majesty, the majesty of the resurrected Jesus Christ. That's who he's describing. That's who we're becoming is all the more into the image of the Son of God. I mean, think about it. What makes His coming kingdom so great? What are we so excited for? It's the King. What makes His reign so invigorating? It's the character of that King. And He's changing us into the kind of people who want Him. As a pastor, I've come alongside of many people who are so broken and used to abuse in relationships They don't know how to love someone who loves them back. They don't know how to actually be committed to someone who's committed to them. And so they run to those who abuse them rather than lift them up. So many times. And that's what we do. We run to those who abuse us. We run to the things that destroy us. But God is making us throughout the process of our lives the kind of people that when his kingdom does come, we can enjoy it and we can enjoy him. And be satisfied in him. The entrance to his kingdom, which is open to all who want, ask and it shall be given. Knock and you shall enter, right? These things, these metaphors, it's available. The entrance is lavishly laid open for us if we want it. And he's making us the kind of people who want that, who are excited about it. Jesus Christ is virtue par excellence. He's the fountain of knowledge perfect in passion, eternal in endurance. He puts the God back in godliness, the perfect elder brother for our brotherly affection, the epitome of love, so that when Christ comes, the fulfillment of the Lord's prayer is finally realized, that his kingdom has come, his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. We celebrate with Christ our King, and our happiness and our holiness find their great consummation in God's yes for eternity, We all want to change some way, right? But why? What's your goal? Is it to be seen as better or to better see Jesus Christ? Only the latter can bring true and lasting and satisfying change. The way we try to change, it needs to change. And we must have a gospel motivation that propels us, a gospel practice or strategy that practices us, and our Jesus-centered goal that inspires us with joy in the thicket, because then we'll be able to sing with our days, our weeks, our years, High King of heaven, my victory won. May I reach heaven's joys, O bright heaven's sun. Heart of my own heart, whatever befall, still be my vision, O ruler of all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that in the gospel, we have a motivation that is solid because it's based upon what you've already done for us. Thank you that you've given us a strategy that now calls us to action, to exert effort, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And thank you for the goal, the sweet and beautiful end that we have before us, which is really a new beginning. And God, I pray that as we hear this message, may you, despite what we see in culture, despite sometimes our own experience, may you instill within our heart a hope for change centered in Jesus. May your word truly be guiding the steps of our lives. May we call out to you in prayer and may we lean into one another. God, you are so good. We pray this in Jesus' name.